Hey, my name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I, I gotta tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know you're in a good place, and I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one? Radio is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hello out there. This is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio? And I'm now passing the baton off to my man, Veda. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. I am your host, Veda Hedgeman, and I am here today to discuss an incredible topic, an incredible topic, and we have uh, probably the uh, one of the best people who we can discuss this topic with on today. Our guest on this morning is a very esteemed philosopher. Uh, she has lengthy. She has a lengthy publication record. Uh, she can talk about basically anything. You know, uh, she has a lengthy publication record in areas like testimony, independence, probability theory, and all of these wonderful things that requires insightful intellect. Um, she's a PhD in English literature from Vanderbilt University, and she's also the wife of the esteemed Timothy McGrew. So, if you have not put it together yet, ladies and gentlemen, we are speaking to none other than Sister Dr. Lydia. McGrew. How are you feeling on today, Sister McGrew? How are you feeling? I'm feeling positive about our interview. I'm looking forward to talking. Oh, yes, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm certainly looking forward to you as well. So, all right. So for, for those who are listening, for those who are listening, um, the primary reason why we have Lydia on is her insight on the subject of undesigned coincidences. Now, you have a book, and we're going to get to other things that you're working on as well, but you have a book. Um, can you give us the title and, and tell us exactly what it's about? The book is called Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. It came out in 2017, and it's still going strong. It is about this thing called undesigned coincidences, and you may wonder what that is. And that I call them incidental interlockings that point to truth. I'm reviving an older argument that was known to uh, apologists and Christians in the 1700s and the 1800s, and then it became lost for a long time. And uh, my husband, Tim McGrew, began to revive it some years ago and introduced me to it, and I just happened to have time to write this book first, and it helps to show the reliability of Scripture, and in particular, my book is focusing on the Gospels and Acts. Now, now your book is actually, I know you mentioned it came out in 2017 and it's still growing strong. You know, I, I tend to notice, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like it's slowly but surely still catching on, you know, in various circles. Because truthfully speaking, I actually wasn't aware of it until a few months ago. And I got really excited because I am familiar with J.J. Blunt's book. But J.J. Blunt's work, um, you know, it's... It's older, you know, so can you tell us, uh, before we get into the specifics of Undesigned Coincidences, so is, is your book like an updated version or a way to make it more current to current times or, or what? You could, you could think of it that way, and you might have heard of Blunt because Jay Warner Wallace mentions Blunt. Um, and uh, Jim Wallace is one of the only other people other than Tim who's actually been explicitly reviving this argument. Uh, one of the things that I did was I also used Paley, uh, William Paley, that people may have heard of, 
but they probably haven't heard of this work by him. It's called The Horai Paulini, and it is about Paul's epistles and the book of Acts. So hmm. I have an entire section of my book, the second half of it is on Acts, and that's uh, entirely new in recent times, hmm. uh, to bring that back. I mean, Paley wrote in the 1700s. So um, hmm. this is something that I'm doing that, yes, it makes it more likely that people will read it because I'm writing it in modern language and so forth. I'm also occasionally winnowing through things where, say, there might be legitimate um, new textual discoveries, like a, the um, older text family or something might have meant that we need to revise one of the coincidences or something like that. So I'm updating it. Uh, I'm updating the argument in several places. Hmm. And I'm focusing it on uh, the kinds of you know, skeptical scenarios that have become so popular since then that the Gospels were um, not reliable and so forth. And so I'm showing how it affects that. Hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm really bringing it into the 21st century for 21st century readers. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it's funny. I actually hadn't thought about it um, explicitly in that sense. I, you, you mentioned Jim Warner Wallace. He actually does like even like in the in the God's Not Dead movie when he was um, u- utilizing his you know his um, his detective expertise. He actually mentioned an undesigned coincidence when Jesus was um, you know when Jesus was being insulted and assaulted, but only one of the Gospels mentioned that he was blindfolded. So when they said prophesy tell us who hit you you know that that's basically an example of an undesigned coincidence correct it it is indeed yes now all right now all right so i, I want to jump into the meaty stuff so all right so you explain to us what an undesigned coincidence is already but before i ask you for an example um I, i've i've read some of your book I've seen a couple uh, presentations of yours, and you go into such awesome detail. That's so awesome. So before we go into an example, can you tell us again, I know you already kind of mentioned it, but can you tell us again what exactly is an undesigned coincidence as it pertains to biblical literature? Right. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to show it in general, and I might even give a modern example because I think that helps people okay. get real, that it isn't even just biblical literature. It can pertain to, to people who are talking to you, or it could pertain to the history of the Civil War, or anything like that. So I call it an incidental interlocking that points to truth. So hmm. here's one made-up hypothetical thing you might, that might happen to you one day. One of your coworkers might come into the office and say, um, wow, I saw an accident, a car accident at this intersection and name the intersection. Right. And then a few hours later, a second co-worker might come in and say, I'm really sorry I'm late. I had a flat tire. And I had a flat tire because I got some glass in one of my tires. I was driving through this intersection. And he might name the same intersection that the first guy named. But notice the second guy doesn't say he saw an accident. Right. Um, and the first guy doesn't mention that there was any that there was glass strewn all over the road. But you can sort of assume that if there was an accident, there would be glass in the road. And so the second guy might have gotten a flat tire from that. That's a very everyday example right. of a kind of undesigned coincidence. Sure. Then we can see how this could also happen in in the in the Bible, where you can have different accounts or different parts of an account that explain one another, or they're both explained by some other event that would give you reason to expect both of them. 
together in this interesting explanatory fashion, which is why I have a jigsaw puzzle in the picture <laughs> on the front of my book. <laughs> yes, yes, I saw that. I thought that was really, really cool. You know, now, 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 it's funny that that you use that as an example because let, let's say it, so in the lamest terms example that you just provided, you know, um, with someone getting caught in traffic, you know, say they're late for work. So let's say there's someone, um, you know, they're the manager of that office or, you know, uh, someone in human resources. If they heard both of those stories, they'd be able to put two and two together like, oh, wow, well, that actually makes sense. This person said they were caught in traffic because there was an accident. And then I spoke to this person later who may or may not necessarily even know that I talked to a person who said they were caught in traffic because of an accident, but now I'm talking to this person two hours later, and they're telling me that they actually had a flat tire, it was glass in their tire, and they held up traffic, you know, and it kind of points to consistency, right? Is, is, that, is that the point? Right, that and also, as you say, independence, because it doesn't look like these two guys got together and said, hey, you know, let's make up this lie together. They look like they're each saying something a little bit different and like they're not colluding. Hmm. That's 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 incredible stuff. So okay, so so now that we've des- ex- described um, what the undesigned coincidence is, um, can you give me an example? Uh, can you give me an example on um, biblical literature, or maybe you're going to focus on the gospels? So, uh, how do these accounts support each other unintentionally? Oh, and by the way, before you get before you get to that, people, uh, one of the reasons why I'm fascinated with this argument is because this is something that, uh, in my opinion, can only happen when things are being truth, you know, when things are being honest, because, you know, you end up being so honest on accident. You know, it's like, I wasn't even trying to make that point, but because because it's true, things like this occur. And it's also how you can catch people in lies, you know, when you start examining stuff, you know, as you start listening to a story and it's like, wait a minute, that would make you 12 years old, you know, you know, you know, when we start really examining the details, you know, so. Exactly. So, okay. So, So, yeah, so let me let me pick an example from, and there's many, many of these in my book, and I can give several today. Uh, I'll give an example from the feeding of the 5,000. Okay. Mark, in Mark 6, specifically says that when, when Jesus said to have the people sit down, they sat down on the green grass. And Mark is the only one who uses the word green there and says that it, it was green grass. Uh, it's even the word we use for, like, chlorophyll, chlorox, green grass. And then you go over to John, and John is telling the story of the feeding of the 5,000, and he just says in passing, the time of Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near at hand, mm-hmm. John 6, 4. And John doesn't mention that the grass was green, and Mark doesn't mention that it was nearly Passover. But, of course, those would fit together, especially if you know that part of the world. There isn't a whole lot of green grass there. Uh, it's not like hmm. Michigan where it rains all summer long and on into the fall. We've got green grass all over the place all the time. So with that background knowledge, we can realize that uh, John is explaining Mark, why the grass was green because of the time of year. But neither of them is appearing to try to explain each other. They're speaking in this casual hmm. way just telling what they know, which is how we know the truthful people do speak and write. So that's just one little tiny example. And by the way, there are more 
undecided coincidences concerning the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospels than any other incident, I suspect that's because all four Gospels tell it. Hmm. We've got a lot of different data that we can fit together. Hmm. Before I ask you for another undesigned coincidence, do you know off the top of your head what another one as it pertains to the feeding of the 5,000 is? I'm curious. Well, sure. Uh, here's, here's one that people, people really seem to like. Um, when Jesus sees them, the crowd, uh, and they need to be fed, it's getting to be evening time in John 6, he turns and he says, he's teasing his disciples, it's pretty clear, and he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread that all of these may eat? Now, of course, Jesus is not seriously proposing that they buy bread for them. We would nowadays say he's trolling, he's, he's teasing them. <laughs> um, but why does he ask Philip specifically? And it might just, all yes, there are 12 disciples, somebody had to be right. standing next to him, okay, but, but it would be interesting uh, and fun if we had an explanation as to why he asked Philip in particular, especially since Philip is not, like, one of the most right. absolutely prominent disciples among them. It's not like Peter, James, and John. Well, elsewhere, completely different context in John, it, it says, again, in passing, Philip was from Bethsaida, which was the same uh, city where... Um, Peter, Peter was from. And um, so that's just mentioned very briefly. Hmm. John, in a completely different context. Then you go over to Luke. Luke, when he's telling about the feeding of the 5,000, says it took place in a deserted place near and belonging to Bethsaida. So you got to put all those three things together, and Jesus is saying to Philip, because he's a local, hey, where can we buy bread? so that these people can all eat. And he picks Philip because, you know, that'll make sense, even though he is just joking. So that's just one other example within the, uh, within the feeding of the 5,000. Wow. Wow. That, that's really fascinating stuff. And, and I don't, I don't want to be redundant here. So, all right, so if I say anything that's redundant, I ask that you forgive me, Lydia. Sometimes, you know, when I'm learning, I just kind of repeat it. You know, that's how it sticks in my brain. And also, you know, it may even help you know, um, one of our listeners, who knows? But essentially, in the example that you just gave, let's say, um, I don't know, I, I, I'll use me for an example. If I'm in a room with Greg Kogel, Jim Warner Wallace, and Frank Turek, and all of these wonderful people, you know, I'm not going to be the Christian apologist that people come to for a specific answer. You know, um, they will go to those people first. They will probably go to you first. Now, if there's an example where or if there's um, a story or a narrative where someone did come to me, maybe someone wouldn't necessarily think twice about it, but it would be interesting. But then if someone gives another account and it's like, OK, well, they actually knew Veda for the last three years, you know, so because they had this really tough question and they were in the same room as these other people, you know, they Point it to Veda, you know, so it's almost like it's answering a question of, okay, well, why would they go to Veda opposed to uh, Dr. Turek or, you know, or Jim Warner Wallace or Kuku or these, you know, or, or these other people? That may be a sucky example, but I'm just kind of trying to. Yeah, but then, and, then the, and then you learn that they're your friend. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's a, that would be similar, sure. Yeah, and, and it may be a comfort level there, you know, where it's like, okay, well, that ex explains why they would go to Vader. That's that, that's that's really interesting stuff. Now, now are you okay? So I, I want to get to Acts soon, and I want to get to some of your work on on the Book of John because I actually looked into that. But 
Can you give us another? Uh, can you give us another? Sure. That's that. That's not related to the feeding of the five thousand. Sure, from from the Gospels. Sure, absolutely. Um, there's a place in uh, John one. I have so many. You know, I just <laughs> I pick them. I go, oh, this is a different one. I've done this one in a while. In in John one, thirty two through thirty four, John the Baptist is giving what you might call a flashback of the baptism of Jesus. He's apparently not speaking you know, at the time. He's talking afterwards about what it was like. And he says that the one who sent him to baptize, which would presumably be God the Father, you know, John the Baptist was a prophet, and he's claiming to get these special revelations, and that that one who sent him to baptize told him to look for someone who had this, had this dove descending on him. And so then he says that, you know, this, this happened when he baptized Jesus, and he says that I saw and bore record that this was the Son of God. Now, the interesting thing is that when you, when you read what John the Baptist says there in the Gospel of John, previous to that, he never mentions anything about the Son of God. He doesn't say that the one who sent him to, um, to, bear, to baptize said that this would be the Son of God. It's that this is the one who would um, baptize with the Holy Ghost. But there's no previous mention of the Son of God. So what does he mean by, I saw and bore record that this was the Son of God? How did he know that that had that implication? Well, when you go over to what are called the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I'm just going to pick Mark here, which is often regarded as the earliest, in Mark 1.11. It says that when Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water, there was a voice from heaven that said, you are my beloved son. Okay. Hmm. All right. So that that was what John the Baptist could have been witnessing that he saw and, and said, aha, this is the Son of God. But the Gospel of John doesn't mention that John the Baptist himself mentioned that. And Mark doesn't talk about John the Baptist saying, oh, yeah, I saw on board record that this was the Son of God. So this shows us, I think, that um, the Gospel of John is really telling us what John the Baptist said. And you'll sometimes find it suggested that the author of John put words into John the Baptist's mouth. But I don't think, I don't think that's a good argument. I think we really have reason to believe that he was acquainted with John the Baptist or that he had access to the, the actual things John the Baptist stood around saying. And I think that this fitting together about bearing record that Jesus was the Son of God and the voice from heaven are evidence for that. Hmm. Now, h- how do we know how do we know that sometimes like we aren't stretching, you know, um, like like as far as like trying to force a connection? Like like how can we tell when something is a genuine, um, you know, just way of truth when we're giving a narrative or for the sake of this conversation, undesigned coincidences? How, how do we know when it's genuine support to that versus us kind of trying to pull something out of it? Well, I think we consider alternative hypotheses, and so this is what I call, what is called an inference to the best explanation. And the phrase I like to use sometimes is giving something a fair test drive. Okay. So we've got the hypothesis that these authors really knew what they were talking about, that they had access to the truth, that they were reporting truthfully, and that these events really happened. There's, there's our sort of overarching hypothesis. And we have a version of it in a given case. Like here, the, the hypothesis would be that the author of John really knew what John the Baptist was saying. Uh, and then on the other side, that there was this voice from heaven. And so we say, how well does that hypothesis explain the data that we have? Does it do a good job at explaining that data? 
And, and notice that that hypothesis is a very natural hypothesis. You know, I didn't, I didn't just gerrymander it. I didn't just uh, gin it up. I, it's, it's, it's a very um, ordinary kind of hypothesis. Okay, maybe they were telling the truth. You know, maybe what they say is really what happened. Let's try that on for size, and then when that fits extremely well with what we have and what we actually find in the details, then that's some evidence that this is actually what was going on, and I call this a cumulative case. You put all of these together, and eventually you really come to trust these documents in a justified way. Hmm. Now, have you ever... Have you in in gathering your accumulative cases? Have you ever, uh, you know, tried to think of possible explanations um, just to, in an attempt to be fair and rational? But it, but essentially, those those responses just ultimately just don't make sense, or they just don't add up when, when we consider all of the historicity that surround that time. Correct? Yeah, I I actually do quite a lot of that in the book. Um, Generally, what I'll do is I'll talk about the possibility that one of the accounts was made up, hmm. in whole or in part. You know, I'm not necessarily saying entirely made up, but that the detail in question was made up. And uh, I'll consider that, you know, over and over again. But would it mean, uh, for example, the author of John, I think, had access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I realize that that's a controversial issue, but I think he did have mm-hmm. access to them. So that, in a way, makes it harder for me because then someone might say, well, then he was just basing what he was doing on those earlier documents and uh, trying to make these subtle allusions or something. And I consider that, and I talk about how uh, there was a guy named J.S. Houston. He was one of Paley's editors, and he said something like this. The, uh, the point must be such as to strike the reader for a fictionalizer to use it, because otherwise it will fail in its purpose. That's a slight paraphrase, but that's how, what Housen is saying, that if something is too subtle, it's of no value to someone who's trying to fake it. And I think that great evidence for that is the fact that many of these have gone unnoticed for nearly 2,000 years. Hmm. Um, so if we, who have the Gospels literally sitting in front of us and we can read them anytime we want, sometimes don't even notice these connections, why would a person who was making up, say, part of it, try to connect it in this extremely subtle way that might simply not be noticed? That's not worth his while to do that. It's a, a kind of unnecessary artistry and an overly complex hypothesis, as opposed to, as you were saying earlier, he's just telling the truth. Hmm. Because it is true, it fits together. So, yeah, th- those are the kinds of alternative hypotheses that I try to consider. And these can, uh, of course, also answer certain kinds of theories about pre-existing traditions or whatever. Uh, that, okay, the author of John knew there was a tradition to the effect that there was a voice from heaven. Fine. Uh, he also probably knew there were Gospels that said there was a voice from heaven. But that's not a good explanation for his inventing words of John the Baptist without even recounting the voice from heaven itself, which would explain those words. All right. Now, if I'm a skeptic and I'm listening to um, this interview, I may say, okay, Lydia, I hear you. I hear a couple, a few of the examples that you stated already. I hear how you explained the accumulative case and everything, if you responded to that. But then a, a person still may say, okay, well, what about um, some things that are contradictions. Now, 
people often scholars, people who aren't even apologists often um often respond to alleged contradictions that are throughout the Bible, particularly in the Gospels. But how, how do you respond? How, how, how would you respond to that pushback? Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent question. And one of the things I would say is that I welcome apparent discrepancies because they're evidence of independence between the accounts. Um, very often, skeptics want to have it both ways. Mm. On the one hand, they want these accounts to be extremely artfully constructed so as to fit together. And then on the other hand, they want to say, oh, look at these discrepancies. Well, if the author was going to that much trouble to try to fit his account together with another account, he wouldn't introduce apparent discrepancies. He would be careful not to do that. Right. Look at another possibility uh, that I've just been discussing recently with somebody. Suppose there were some earlier account that has since completely vanished, and I think this is a very, very implausible ad hoc hypothesis, but that included uh, both parts of some of those examples I gave concerning the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe it included the green grass and the statement that it was nearly Passover, for example. And then Mark just uh, knew about or mentioned one of those, and John just happened to mention the other, this, this sort of umbrella source got sort of fragmented in our Gospels. Well, that doesn't explain the fact that there are alleged contradictions concerning specifically the feeding of the 5,000. And I don't even have uh, necessarily a favorite uh, answer to all of them. Like one of them concerns that they're very small things, very trivial things. Uh, at the very end when Jesus told the disciples to get into a boat and go away, uh, in Mark it appears, if you just read it on its face, that uh, Jesus dismissed uh, the crowds. He sent the disciples away, and then he dismissed the crowds. In the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus went up into the mountain and because they were going to try to make him king. And then later, the disciples came down and left in the boat. Okay, and instead of it seeming like Jesus sent them away before he went up into the mountain. So these very tiny little chronological discrepancies. Well, that's not what we would expect if both Mark and John were copied partially from some earlier source, because you would expect that earlier source to be internally coherent. So apparent discrepancies actually have their place in making these look more like eyewitness testimony, because eyewitness testimony will sometimes contain uh, minor apparent discrepancies on uh, side points, as it were, and, and that actually shows that they were not just working from some common source or colluding with one another. Yeah, and, and you know, also further to that point, further to that point, you know, I, I don't think trained atheists or trained skeptics who are actually scholars in this field make this argument. But oftentimes, lay people, you know, uh, will, will have an argument about, you know, about it being a fabricated, uh, about the Bible in general being a fabricated narrative that some that some council got together around 300 ish ad like it was a group of people and of course that's that that's clearly false but even in even without getting extremely deep to the historicity that we have of uh of biblical literature and manuscripts that we have even without doing all of that your point also debunks that um that objection that pretty much only lives online from my view but that even describes that because why would a group of people get together 
um, <laughs> you know, and have quote unquote apparent contradictions that they could easily fix out like that, that they could easily just adjust if someone was just making up a story. Right. That's absolutely true. Reality actually tends more to produce these kinds of things because people just remember it somewhat differently or they or there's some kind of some kind of aspect of it that we just don't know that would help to explain the contradiction or something and so reality has this texture and witness testimony has this texture and that's one of the things that I really want people to get out of my book and uh, let me just add if you read this book try to read it with attention and in detail and read you know a chapter or something don't just dip into it and read one page or something because I really think it's when you start seeing the argument over a somewhat longer period of time, you get a sense of the texture of witness testimony. And that's what I want to give people, and that's part of why Jay Warner Wallace, uh, you know, endorsed the book and wrote the afterward, because he, as a detective, understands that texture of real life and of witness testimony. And I think that's been lost in a lot of scholarship today, uh, that this is what reality looks like, and this is what truthful testimony looks like. Now, many, many scholars, uh, now I know so far the things that you've given us, and, and by the way, if you're just not tuning in, we're, we're here right now on Is He A Real One Radio. We have Lydia McGrew, the author of Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel and Acts. Okay, now if you're just tuning in, make sure you listen to the rest of the interview, and then make sure you tune in from the very beginning because she's already given us some really, really, really insightful and good stuff. Now, Lydia, so so far what what you've given us are in the are are in the gospels, right? Now, most scholars, most scholars consider Acts, the book of Acts, you know, like part 2 to the Gospel of Luke. Now, a section of your book though uh has things that are specifically towards uh the book of Acts and Paul's letters, correct? That's correct. So so how how was that different from how we so how we have the undesigned coincidences that are in the Gospels, how are, the, how are they different, if at all, as far as what's in the book of Acts and various Paul letters? Well, a lot of times what we find in the Gospels will be a description of the same event or of different events that fit together. Right. Um, so like things that John the Baptist said and the baptism of Jesus, or different descriptions of the feeding of the 5,000. More often, we find that Acts describes Paul's travel, or something about his companions, or his plans, where he was going to go, and this matches up in a subtle way with something he mentions in the epistles, especially in those ending parts of the epistles, where he's sending greetings to people, or he's saying where he is, or where he's planning to go next. Those are very rich in historical information, or he will say to the... um, person in an epistle or the group, you know how I was persecuted in this town or something like that. And, you know, they know how they know that he was persecuted in that town, but we don't necessarily know how they know that or why he would say that. So then you go over and you read, uh, you read the book of Acts and you find out you know, why that particular town would have been particularly aware of that persecution and so forth in a nearby town or something of that kind. Or when Paul traveled somewhere, one of the most interesting things to do is try to place the writing of Paul's letters in the book of Acts. And I can now do that for many of Paul's letters, even to the verse. Can you give us an example? Right here in Acts, even though Acts does not say so. 
I can do it by these kinds of wonderfully indirect, but actually cumulative, very, very powerful inferences. So that's how it, it's a little bit different, but actually very convincing. Can you give us an example of that? And I know a lot of this stuff is in the book, but for sake of conversation, oh. can you give us an example? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I want to give people a, sort of a sample. Right. Oh, it's like this is a free sample. Right. <laughs> right. It can go out by the, by the book. So here's one about Timothy's upbringing in First uh, Timothy. And so First Timothy is one of the pastorals, and the authenticity of these are sometimes questioned uh, as Pauline. And I just want to mention that uh, Haley has even more of these examples, specifically defending the Pauline authorship of these epistles. So in 1 Timothy 1.5 and 3.14 and 15, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, reminds Timothy of Timothy's own upbringing and how he was taught the scriptures from the time he was a child by his mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice. Well, who's missing from that picture? His dad, right? I mean, where's, where's Dad? Where's Waldo? Um, <laughs> you know, this is not a matriarchal culture we're talking about here, whether Greek or Jewish. Uh, and here's, this is the education of a young man, and he's attributing it to women, and he's naming them, and, he, and Paul has great, obviously great respect for them. We can certainly infer that this was a Jewish upbringing, because when Paul refers to knowing the scriptures from childhood, he would have meant, he would have meant the Old Testament. So we can infer already from that, that there was maybe something about Timothy's dad. Maybe he was dead, for example, uh, or maybe he wasn't a Jew. That's another possibility. Um, he's not mentioned. So then you go, not only not mentioned, but specifically his place, that you might expect to be his place in, in Timothy's education, is taken by the mother and grandmother. So then you go over to Acts 16, okay. when Timothy is first mentioned in the book of Acts, and it says that Paul came to the region of Derby and Lystra, and he found there a young disciple named Timothy who was well spoken of by the disciples uh, in that region, and he wanted him to come with him, mm. travel with him. And it says he took him and he circumcised him because his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. Wow. So right there, we find that Acts is referring to the very fact that we might have very indirectly inferred from First Timothy that his mother was a Jew, but his father was, mm. and in this case, Greek, clearly means Gentile, and therefore he would have been regarded a Jew under Jewish law through his mother, but he would not, he was not circumcised because his father didn't, apparently probably didn't want him to be. But what's really interesting, too, is that Acts doesn't name his mother, and he doesn't name, doesn't mention his grandmother at all. So it's quite clear that the, the author of Acts is not basing this on some version of the epistle to Timothy, which I'm sure was written later anyway. Um, but that he's just narrating what he knows about Timothy and Paul's first association with Timothy. And it dovetails really well with what we learn about Timothy in, in First Timothy in this very indirect way. Wow, that, that's powerful stuff, Lydia. That's really powerful stuff. Now, you, you know what I love about this study that, that you're breaking down for us on today and that you break down in your book, again, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel and Acts by Lydia McGrew. Now, one of the things that I love a lot about this study um, and about your book is this is actually a this can actually be apologetics for those of us who are believers who don't necessarily study apologetics. Like for me, I'm a former agnostic and many people who study apologetics have some sort of similar background or they have some sort of season of doubt. 
which is why we tend to have a passion for this study. And oftentimes in the church, um, not just in my church, but in various different churches from the beginning of the church, there have been uh, Christian followers who didn't necessarily endorse the study of some sort of defense of the faith. Uh, providing some sort of rational understanding or what we call the study of apologetics. But I feel like this is the the perfect study, the, the perfect approach to apologetics for someone who may not necessarily want to take all of the manuscript arguments and all of the historicity things that um, some of us may cover. Because if a person is a preacher or they're a Bible study or Sunday school teacher and they've just been studying the Bible all of this time, you know, they can follow what you're saying, you know, <laughs> they, they can follow what you're saying. Just turn. OK, she said um, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter six. OK, the green grass. And, and they can follow what you're saying and they can teach that and still provide a rational understanding, although they might although they might not have a passion for the other apologetic arguments. Would you agree with that? It's very portable. It's between the pages, you know, largely between the covers of your Bible, and yet it's not a circular argument. It's not like you're, you know, pounding on your Bible and saying, you have to accept that this is God's Word. What you're doing is you're treating these as possibly being historical sources, and then you've got them all in your hand, and then you're comparing them and seeing these signs of authenticity that are contained in them. It's it's what's known as internal evidence. And, And I agree with you. I think it's really good. Layman, my book is intended to be a crossover book, as I call it. Laymen can use it and appreciate it, and scholars can use it and appreciate it both, and can both profit from it. And that's a hard thing to do. I attempt to hit that balance where both groups can read and, and profit from it. And I, I would also add to what you said, I think sometimes some arguments in apologetics are awfully abstract, and I am not dissing them or saying they're bad, but like the cosmological argument, for example, or the moral argument or something like that. People might say, I'm not a philosopher. You know, I don't don't know all this, or I'm not a physicist. I can't talk about whether, I don't want to have to go into the scientific arguments that the universe had a beginning or that kind of thing or the law of thermodynamics and so forth. And this is, I think, more, more down to earth and in that sense more accessible than some of those philosophical arguments. Now, this... Hmm. All right. So uh, you're smart. So uh, so so I don't think I'm gonna throw you off here. This just kind of organically popped in my mind. One of the things that that I often um, that that I often feel struck as sort of an undesigned. Co- All right. Let, let me put it this way. So as a skeptic, you know, I didn't have a one argument or a one book or one article that I read that was like, oh, Eureka, Jesus is God, Christianity is true. You know, it's kind of an accumulation of everything that you learn over years and over studying. But there are a couple things that I find it really, really hard to describe. Even today, if I did my best to try to think of, to try to think of an argument, even if I just wanted to be as um, fair as possible. What's a good argument? I can't personally think of an argument. I'm not sure how you feel about Isaiah chapter 53. You know, I know that there are some arguments out there that feel like in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 isn't about Jesus. I I think it's pretty clear and obvious that that it is. But but the fact that we have uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, and we have an Isaiah scroll that was copied before Jesus even lived, and it is so close 
and it's describing, in my opinion, Jesus's life and ministry and death, like so clearly. Actually, when I bring that up, when I ask people to read it, sometimes people um, who aren't trained in it will think I'm reading from the New Testament. They'll think that I'm reading like from the Book of Acts or from one of the Gospels or something. And it's like, no, this is uh-huh. actually... <laughs> like a sermon or something. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like this is actually in the Old Testament, but. I guess the reason this popped in my mind in our conversation now is that's, although it's prophecy, you know, that's also an undesigned coincidence as well in the sense of it's describing Jesus unnamed. And then we get all of this historicity about Jesus in the 27 different books that we have about that that we have after Jesus's death, the four gospels, and then the twenty three other books that affirm Jesus's life, his teachings, and his ministry. Yeah, I think prophecy has some of the same, or fulfilled prophecy, allegedly fulfilled prophecy, does have some of the same characteristics of undesigned coincidences, and particularly when you can argue, you know, we know this was causally uh, independent, that this was causally written sooner. Psalm 22 is another example, as well as Isaiah 53, the resemblance to uh, crucifixion of the sufferings of the person there in Psalm 22 is quite remarkable. Uh, And so... In that sense, you can broaden the concept, you can broaden it to external uh, external connections as well. So if there's some reference, for example, to Archelaus in uh, Matthew, and then my husband Tim will talk about uh, the fact that Archelaus really was kind of crazy and did, <laughs> did some really bad things that um, Joseph might have heard of, and it says that he didn't want to settle in the place that was being ruled by Archelaus, and so he turned aside and went to Galilee. You can regard that as an undesigned coincidence with the external uh, source, like that's telling us that about Archelaus. So, it, you know, the, the term or the concept definitely can be applied more broadly. Of course, I, you know, I stick with it here in these particular things to treat it more as a matter of, you know, internal uh, testimony right. within these documents for certain books, but definitely the principles what you might call the, the epistemic principle mm. apply more broadly. Now, b- before I move on, I-, I have one more question. I actually asked you this um, when you were on the cross-examine platform, and we want to give a shout-out to Frank Turek and Jorge. You know, you guys are doing awesome work over there. Now, I actually submitted this question, and they asked you, but I want to ask you here as well, if you don't mind. What are your thoughts on, because I, I hear different views. Sometimes I hear people mention Abraham in the Old Testament when he was about to sacrifice his son um, on, on the mountain. And then some say, or some, it's not a popular argument, but you hear it sometimes, you know, that when Jesus actually was the ultimate sacrifice, where Abraham's son wasn't the sacrifice because God stopped it at the last minute, some question or wonder if that was on the same mountain. Do you think that's a strong argument or like, what is your question on, what is your, what are your thoughts on that? To say that it was the same mountain is getting pretty specific. I gather that there is some historical evidence that it may have been in approximately the same region, that Jerusalem may have been built uh, in approximately that same location. Uh, the exact location of Jesus' crucifixion is, hard, is, is a matter of controversy right up until now. Uh, so I don't think we want to get overly precise. The typology of the sacrifice of Isaac and where he says God will provide 
for himself a sacrifice. Abraham says that to him. I think is pretty solid that, in a sense, God was writing there in the form of history a, a little hat tip, as it were, to what was going to happen, you know, thousands of years later in, in the birth of his son, uh, or over a thousand years later in, in the crucifixion of his son. I'm not sure how much more significance the incident takes on if it occurred in, you know, on exactly the same mountain. Uh, and as far as I know, that would probably be too precise for us to try to insist upon. But, I, you know, like I say, there's some, some evidence that Jerusalem was in approximately that same location. Got you. Now, uh, again, guys, we're, we're on the phone right now with Lydia McGrew. She's an excellent author. She has a lot of wisdom. Um, we're discussing her, her recent book, her 2017 book, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel and Acts. Now, I also wanted to ask you about a recent uh, series that you did on the Gospel of John. Now, is this like a Bible study for those who are hearing about it for the first time? Or, or what exactly uh, were or are you breaking down in your Gospel of John series? And also, where can we find it? Right, so for right now, you, um, I would suggest that the easiest thing to do, because people will be able to remember this, is just go to LydiaMcGrew.com, because that's easy to remember. Right. Um, and that is my portal page, my author portal page. And if you search on that page for John or John's Gospel, you will find a link to all of the posts, all of the scholarly blog posts I have written thus far on the Gospel of John, which is an ongoing series. So I am... Uh, discussing some of the arguments that have been brought against the historicity of John's Gospel. I am answering those. I am also bringing forward positive evidence for the historicity of John's Gospel, such as, in particular, um, the um, unity of the character of Jesus as between John and then, on the other hand, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are sometimes called the synoptics, because it's been said that Jesus' personality is very different, or that Jesus is a different Jesus, in a sense, uh, you know, they have a different literary portrayal of him that's very different, and I'm arguing against that. I'm also writing about the voice of Jesus and the similarity of the voice of Jesus, which is uh, a very bold claim to make in the current scholarly milieu. So I'm I'm having a lot of fun with that. Some of them are called only one Jesus, uh, and I'm in other words arguing that there is only one Jesus. Some of them are called the voice of the master that we're really hearing the voice of Jesus. So this is, in a sense, an apologetic study for the historicity of John, and I'm hoping to turn this into a book uh, on, on the Gospel of John as a historical witness to, to Jesus, and I'm also going to be talking about it at an upcoming conference here in, in Kalamazoo on September 21st and 22nd. Now, why do you think... Why do you think the Gospel of John, of all the Gospels, seems to be questioned the most? Is it because it's probably the latest? I mean, but that wouldn't be enough just because it's probably the latest, correct? That it gets questioned so much? It seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, please. It's fine to correct me on my own platform. But it seems to me that as far as history shows us, that the Gospel of John seems to have been questioned the most. And why, why do you think that? First of all, is that your understanding as well? And secondly, why do you think that is? I think it has been questioned the most. And I think one reason is because it's different. Um, and I think it would be foolish to deny that it is different in the sense that it selects different materials. I believe that John had a, a consciously supplementary intention. I think that he, he probably did have access to the 
the others, and he said, well, gee, guys, you know, why'd you leave out these stories? And I want to be sure to put these down before all of us apostles are dead, and made sure that those got written down. So it, it contains a lot of very different material. It contains uh, things that Jesus said that we don't find him saying in the synoptics. And I think people make a very faulty argument, and it starts with the assumption that when a gospel writes about what Jesus didn't said, they're meaning to give a representative sample of what he didn't said. So then if we find Jesus telling a lot of parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we don't find him telling any parables in John, this seems to them like a contradiction. But that's as if, you know, John was saying, if I record Jesus telling zero parables, that means I'm saying that Jesus told zero parables. Well, John never affirms anything like that, um, or that if the if the authors of the other Gospels uh, record Jesus as using a certain word only seldom, or something like that, well, then they're trying to say this is a representative sample, so he hardly ever used that word. The Gospel writers select things from the real historical material. I'm not saying they invented it, but they select them for their purposes of the themes that they want to emphasize. So there is no contradiction just because John is recounting rather different material by way of selection. So it's it's sort of like I use the phrase the red-headed stepchild, you know, that John is the red-headed stepchild of criticism because he just looks different from all the other children. <laughs> and I think that's really drawn a lot of unfair negative attention, and, and it's created just a tremendous prejudice against the Gospel of John, which in many cases is... Uh, it, it attains uh, irrational proportions. And so I think it's it's been a lot of fun to have a chance to answer that. You know, it, if I'm understanding uh, your soliloquy correctly, I, I would draw a comparison to this interview that we're doing right now. We talked a lot about undesigned coincidences uh, in Mark, in John, Acts, um, in, in various Paul letters, but I don't think we spoke a whole lot about Matthew the Gospel of Matthew, at least, in this particular interview. So that's like if someone digs up this interview 2,000 years from now and they, and, and they dig up this interview and they mean, and, and, they try, and they try to make an argument, well, there aren't any undesigned coincidences as it relates to the Gospel of Matthew. Like, that would be a faulty argument just because, in, good, this, yes. just because in this particular conversation we didn't touch it because obviously we aren't going to touch on every single thing, correct? Yeah, that's a that's a really good. I like that very much. Yes, that you could. That would be a false, a faulty inference. Uh, I don't even know if we've mentioned Luke either. Come to, uh, I can't remember, but not as much, right? Mm-hmm. And the the interesting thing about John and undesigned coincidences is that there are actually more undesigned coincidences for John than for any of the other Gospels, and I think this is because he's different. I think that it's because he's telling us so much unique material, there's this opportunity for it to dovetail and intersect with the earlier Gospels in, in these interesting and independent ways. So I think that's, that's fascinating, sort of the opposite of the, the scholarly approach. So I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with my, with my John series. So, so when you say it's more undesigned coincidences in the Gospel of John, what, what do you mean? Like, what, what do you mean? I just mean, like, suppose we talk about someone's unique material. Right. I have my, I have my uh, charts in the book. They're coded, and I've got a little key at the bottom of each one as to what it means. So L indicates a coincidence um, that supports Luke's reliability and matters on which he is independent. You know, mm. um, so this would be, or an M that indicates, you know, unique material, material that's unique to 
uh, Matthew or something like that. So I'm talking about coincidences that specifically relate to material that is only found in John. And then there are coincidences that relate to material that's only found in Matthew or only found in Mark and so forth. Um, and there's, there are more coincidences that relate to material only found in John than only found in any one of the other Gospels, partly because, you know, they do overlap more than John does. Hmm. And also, just to be clear, when you say that John's, that 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 John's gospel has different things. When you say different, do you mean new? Like like has th- like specific details that may not be in the other three gospels. Sometimes they're details. Uh, like for example, the bit about Passover that I mentioned earlier, that the feeding of the five thousand happened at Passover. Sometimes they're entire incidents. Uh, raising of Lazarus, for example, doesn't occur in the other gospels. That's an entire incident. Sometimes you might think of it as an incident within an incident. So we've got the Last Supper in all four Gospels, but only John tells uh, about the foot washing at the Last Supper. Hmm. So at all different levels, John has unique material. Now, this isn't an undesigned coincidence question, but it is related to the Gospel of John. You know, in the olden days, like in the olden, 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 olden days, when the Gospel of John was being criticize some skeptics would argue that the gospel of john was written really late like in like 150 190 a.d and of course the discovery of p52 put that all the way in the toilet now in in your opinion in, in your opinion do you think that as time goes by uh <laughs> that that skeptics should probably just leave the Gospel of John alone a little bit? I mean, like, it's great to examine things, it's great to find answers, but do you think that it's almost like, hey, like, the Gospel of John keeps standing up to various different arguments, you know, like, stop picking on the Gospel of John. Right, well, and not to skeptics, but unfortunately, some Christians as well are uh, more dubious than they need to be about the Gospel of John. Certainly, what you just said about the very late dating of John has been push back and push back and push back to the point that even more liberal scholars are being reluctantly forced to uh, place it more like, it, you know, at the latest, the year 100, but right. probably in the, last, in the later years of the, uh, of the first century, mm-hmm. partly Absolutely. because of manuscript evidence, um, papyrus evidence and so forth that show it, you know, turning up way far away where it would have had to travel to in the early uh, second century, so that it would have had to have been written earlier and so forth. Uh, and also archaeological discoveries such as uh, the Pool of Bethesda and so forth, uh, and it's the familiarity with it, Jerusalem before the fall of Jerusalem and all of that. So that very late dating is just proven to be untenable. Um, but it is interesting to me how way too many scholars, including unfortunately some uh, evangelical scholars as well, will treat some of these things as what you might call nuggets. Hmm. So they are, in a sense, artificially separated or fenced off from the historicity of the rest of John. I would argue that the discovery of the Pool of Bethesda is evidence that indirectly, but really and truly, supports the I Am sayings in John. It's not like you can say, oh, well, there's this archaeological thing, but that's just a nugget of historicity. That has nothing to do with whether John invented Jesus, I am things. I think it has a lot to do with it. It shows the historical intention. And um, I like to use an analogy. I do this for undesigned coincidences as well, but it counts for external evidence and other kinds of confirmation. 
of a loaf of bread. And so you have a loaf of bread, and you're wondering if it's fresh. So you, you sample a, a piece at one end, and it's fresh, and another end, and it's fresh, and several different places across the middle, and they're all fresh. And then you say, oh, well, maybe it's just the parts I haven't sampled yet, and they're really moldy. Well, that's a poor argument. You've sampled it all the way through, and it keeps being fresh. And in the same way, when we find John being historical and being confirmed over and over and over again, we need to be willing to draw that rational, inductive conclusion that he is writing a historical book. Wow. Well, I'm super excited about your book, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel and Acts. Very excited about diving more into into your Gospel of John series on your website, and I encourage others uh, to check that out as well. And also, I think that checking out the Gospel of John series will help, and you can please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not afraid to be corrected, but it sounds to me that having an understanding of some of the things in your Gospel of John series will help you understand some of the undesigned coincidences that will be described in the book. I think the two fit together extremely well. They both tend to confirm the historicity of all of the Gospels, really. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we're right at about an hour in, in terms of our recording time. Now, is there anything else that you're working on that we can look out for? I, I know that we're definitely hoping and, and, and praying, all, all of the Is He A Real One listeners, I hope that we can pray that this Gospel of John series can turn into a book that we can find in one place because your work is awesome. Is there anything else uh, that, that you may be working on and that we can probably look forward to? Is there another series that may be started soon or, or anything that we yeah. can kind of look forward to? Yeah, I've, got, I've actually got two kinds of things sort of going uh, concomitantly, one, and one is partially finished already. I'm actually working on two book manuscripts simultaneously, and one of them is going to be about John, and the other is going to be about what I call uh, literary device theories. I've touched on that just a little bit here when I mentioned right, right. evangelical scholars who uh, have unnecessary doubts about John. Uh, there are also evangelical scholars who have unnecessary doubts about uh, all of the Gospels, and uh, although John, I think it's hit the worst, but that tend to think of them as partially altered factually. Uh, I've already written a series on a book by um, Michael Lacona called Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Right. I have a series on that that's already out there, written in 2017. And then I've done other work on the supposed historical support for that kind of view, and that these things were just expected in the writings of the time. And I believe that that is not well supported, and I've dug into things like Plutarch and other writings of the time. So that uh, book will hopefully come out actually earlier than the John book. And I want to get into all of that and answer some of these things hmm. put forward and um, kind of show that, that we don't need to go that route, that something like what I would call a straight reportage model of the Gospels is actually a better explanation of what we have. So, so, so to be clear, you will or you are making points against the, some of those literary device arguments right. saying basically that you know, and, and again, I may be being redundant, but we don't have to go that route, and here is why I am saying such. That's right. I'm, you know, I'm showing that it really matters and that it really would uh, be very, you know, very different. It would change our view of the historicity of the Gospels rather radically. It's a big deal 
Therefore, it's worth looking into. And then when we do look into it, we find that that is not a well-supported approach and that something far more literal and ordinary in the way of witness reportage is a better justified approach. And of course, as we've just been discussing, undesigned coincidences support that view of the Gospels as well. Wow. Well, that's amazing stuff. You certainly have a platform with Is He a Real One Radio. Anytime you have anything, you know, if you have a Bible study, if you have a new chart, if you have a, a sermon series, you know, if Tim is doing something. First of all, before I let you go, I got to ask you this. What are you and Tim's conversations like? Because you're both so freaking smart, man. So so what is you guys' conversation? Before I let you go, I have to ask you this. Like, what are you guys' conversations like? You guys are both, like, super smart. So, like... We have a lot of fun, a lot of different things we talk about. One thing we talk a lot about is correspondence because uh, Tim and I both have people who write to us or will learn of a question that someone has and we'll talk about that. We'll say, oh, I got a letter from someone today. He asked me this question and this is what I told him, and then the other person will uh, maybe add to that or suggest something or uh, maybe just say that was a great answer or whatever, and we, we throw that back and forth, we toss that back and forth, or I'll say, oh, man, I got, I got a letter from a correspondent today, and I think her question was really way more your kind of thing than my kind of thing. Can I forward it to you? This is what she was asking, and he'll say, sure, and then he'll write back to her. And we go back and forth like that, um, or I might say, I have this correspondent, and he's being very stubborn or something, and, you know, what can I say that will help him understand, and, you know, maybe Tim will have a suggestion, so that's just one of many topics that we have a lot of fun doing, because there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes, uh, aside from his teaching, his lecturing, my blogging, uh, and so forth, a lot of private correspondence that goes on, and we help each other out with that. Wow, this is so awesome. This is so awesome. Well, we're out of time today, but again, guys, we have Lydia McGrew on the line. She just blessed us with a lot of excellent information, a lot of excellent details, and you can find many, many more in greater detail if you go get her new book. Well, if you go get her book, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel of Acts, and she also has wonderful things on her website, so make sure you go to LydiaMcGrew.com. She has an awesome gospel of john series there please if you enjoyed this conversation you will certainly enjoy her book and you will certainly enjoy her website and the gospel of john series and anything else that she has available on her website be sure to check her out um do you have any social media at all i am on facebook you can follow my public content on facebook i i don't accept a whole lot of new friend requests for my private content but i'm putting out a lot more public content now so Feel free, be, be sure to follow me on social media. And if you want to come to uh, Michigan uh, in just a few weeks, on September 21st and 22nd, the conference name is Growing Deeper Roots. Growing Deeper Roots. Find that at growingdeeperroots.org and register. You can bring your copy of the book and I'll autograph it. That is wonderful. Everyone, we have Lydia McGrew, the author of Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel of Acts. Awesome website, LydiaMcGrew.com. Lydia, thank you so much for your time. And listeners, I will catch you next time on Is He a Real One Radio. Hey, this is Greg Kokel, author of Tactics, a Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions and the Story of Reality, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. And you're listening to, Is He a Real One?